Well, welcome. My name is uh, Joseph Bianco. I'm an assistant pastor here, and we're glad that you are with us this evening. As John mentioned, we've been preaching through the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and we're, we just read question 98. So let me begin in prayer uh, for the reading of God's Word, uh, which is found on page 6 of your bulletin. Let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious and Heavenly Father, Lord, as we uh, come before your word, uh, we pause to remember that uh, this is not uh, the words of man, it's the words of God. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to sit under it, uh, to be counseled by it, to take it as that, uh, Lord, your very word to your people, to your church. Father, we long to be impacted by it and changed. We pray that you would Uh, Fulfill your promise that your spirit will work in our hearts through your word, Father, to make us more and more into the image of Christ, to challenge us in our sin, to bring us to repentance, and to renew us, Lord, in the gospel. Lord, I especially pray for those here tonight uh, to whom this word is new, and pray, Father, that you would reveal yourself to them in all the fullness of the spirit. Lord, would you do this for your glory? We pray it in the name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. I hear the word of the Lord. Uh, We're just reading the um, part in in, uh, the normal font. The italics is there just for your context. So we're in Romans 8, uh, starting in verse 26. Page 6 of your bulletin. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit helps, the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called. According to his purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, as I, I mentioned before, we just had the uh, Praying Life seminar and we've been, we've been uh, thinking about prayer, and uh, it was John's, and I, it was a good idea uh, to, to end this evening thinking about uh, prayer and particularly a passage about prayer. Um, so, I just want to remind us what that shorter catechism question said, it said, what is prayer? And um, it said that prayer is the offering up of our desires to God for things agreeable to his will. And that's what I want to focus on tonight, that, that portion. There's a lot to unpack in that statement. Um, and I thought it best uh, that we would reflect tonight, not on how we might pray better necessarily, um, but that there is actually a prayer that we can't pray. In fact, it's a prayer that has to be prayed for us, and that's the Spirit praying for you. Now, this concept, it's challenging to us because, you know, frankly, when we really need to pray, when we're groaning, when we're in in pain, often we find it easier to groan against God than to bring our groans to God. So what do I mean? I mean that in our groaning, we are tempted to think that God is the source of evil and to blame Him to take our pain, sorry, to blame Him, 
rather than to take our pain and entrust it to him. Um, So I have done this before. I'm tempted to blame God. So brothers, the best prayer uh, that we can pray is actually a prayer that we can't pray. Um, One we don't have words for, one only the Spirit can utter on our, our behalf. And so our question tonight is then, how does God pray for us? And in three points, and they're in your outline, He groans for you, He searches you, and He works for your good. So let's look at these. So verse 26 begins, likewise. Likewise. And that's important. The reason I put it, uh, the text in italics um, above there, is because Paul is referencing, wouldn't that likewise, what he just said about the groaning of creation. In the hope of restoration. That's what that last the italic section is about. So likewise means that just as Christians look with hope that God will redeem fallen creation. Likewise, we look with hope at the help that we will receive from the Spirit in our weakness. Likewise, we look with hope at the help we will receive from the Spirit in our weakness. So what is this fallen creation? In this italic section. Well, fallen creation is nothing less than death. It's nothing less than death. It's certainly sickness and illness and, and destruction and, and things like that. But it's also sin and wicked acts and addictions and temptations. And it's weakness. And it's weakness. Verse 26 says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. So then, weakness means, in this context, sickness, or death, or destruction, but it also means sin. It also means sin. Every time we as Christians wage war against what we want to do and the thing that we're doing. So that was, that was what Romans 7 was, uh, if you remember back in Romans. So even with our sin, the Spirit helps us, and that word help uh, in your passage it's not the normal word we might read in Greek for help. It's, um, it's a different word, and I want to tell you what John Calvin says about that word. He says, and there is a great force in the Greek word, lambanatai, which means that the Spirit takes on himself a part of that burden. That the Spirit takes on himself a part of that burden. So how does the Spirit help us? Well, how does he take on part of the burden? I want to look at this connection because it's amazing. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He takes on our groaning. Now there's only two ways to read this, these words here. Either the Spirit is groaning because of our sin which doesn't make sense uh, because that doesn't necessarily help us. Or the groaning of the Spirit is our groaning. He takes on our groaning for us. Now this is something that we actually can't do as humans. Um, when you think of empathy, what is, what is empathy? It's feeling what someone else is feeling. Sympathy is feeling sorry for someone. We can do those things, but, but what is this? There's not a word for it that we have in English. It's beyond empathy. So you, you see, let's imagine for a moment that you had, that, that some tragedy happened to me. So sympathetically, you might say to me, I am, I'm sorry that that happened to you, 
empathetically, maybe you cry with me, but you can't do what the Spirit is doing here. You can't actually experience my pain and understand it and take it on yourself and then present it to God with meaning beyond words. We're human. We can't do that, but that's what's happening in this text that the Spirit is doing for us. Now let me bring this to life a little bit more. What is a groan? Well, it's more than a moan. So, you know, you moan when you're in distress, but a, a groan is louder. It's, it's pain to the point where you really can't stop making noise. You're groaning. And if you have ever groaned with pain, I have, then you also uh, know that you can't have a conversation while you're groaning. You can't speak words while you're in pain. Now, what's the last word of verse 26? It's the word words. But again, it's not the normal Greek word that we might see. It's a negative adverb, and it means words unutterable or words unspoken. The Apostle Paul is saying that in your deepest weakness, the Spirit takes on your burden by experiencing your pain and then offers prayer on your behalf because you don't have the words to speak. Words, unspoken words, unutterable. So, you know, I can struggle sometimes with feeling misunderstood. I think we all have experienced this. Um, And a prayer I pray time and time again is just simply a reminder to myself that when I feel misunderstood, that I would know without a shadow of a doubt that the Lord understands me. That he understands me actually better than I understand myself. So I would imagine that I'm, I'm not alone in feeling misunderstood. I think at times we can all feel misunderstood. And whether it's a spouse or a friend or a coworker or a boss who doesn't get you, the Lord does. The Lord does. And he's actively praying on your behalf words that you don't even know to pray. So I'm referring to where Paul says in the text, we do not know what to pray for as we ought. So there's actually two ways we don't know how to pray. And the first we talked about already, when we're in that place of groaning and we don't have the words. But the second is when we're in the dark. So what I mean is when we we don't know how to pray because the issue is just too complicated. Have you ever been in that situation? Have you ever had a time when you got down to pray and all that came out was, Lord, I don't know how to pray about this. I don't, I don't know what your will is in this situation. And that's kind of the second meaning that we have in this text. God knows that you don't know. He's aware. And he, the encouraging thing is he doesn't expect you to know. Sometimes things are more complicated than we alone can reason and understand. So let me go back in time uh, to Immanuel Kant. And Kant was a great philosopher, uh, and he asserted that the ultimate answer to metaphysics was a human's ability to reason. So I'm synthesizing a lot there, but let me break it down for you. Kant was saying, he was saying that you can always reason your way to answer an unanswerable question. 
by your reason, but here. Here God knows. He knows you are human. He knows you can't. We can't answer everything. Or who would we be? We'd be God. And so he sends the Spirit who prays prayers that you could not dream of praying. God knows there will be times when you will ask unanswerable questions that will come out in mere groans. How long, O Lord? And while we don't know how to pray, the Spirit prays for us. So how does God pray for you? Well, he groans. He groans for you. But he also searches you. And I'll look at that next, verse 27. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. How does God pray for you? Well, he searches hearts. Now, clearly, Paul's distinguishing uh, persons of the Trinity here. So, who is he in verse 27? It would not make sense to say the Spirit knows the mind of the Spirit. It's probably not the Spirit. It could be Jesus. But, remember earlier in the chapter, if you go back in your minds to Romans 8, 15, uh, Paul says this, But you have received the Spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So most likely, I believe Paul is referencing that continued thought that he's speaking of the Father here. So there's a few times in the Bible where we get a window into what is going on in the Trinity, but this is a moment. And Paul is saying that the God, the Father who searches our hearts, knows, knows what is in the mind of the Spirit and somehow perfectly aligns the prayers of the Spirit on our behalf with the will of God. All at the same time. So if I could say it another way, the Spirit will always and only pray absolutely what is best for you. And that which is exactly what the Father thinks is best for you. Now, this is at the same time both incredibly encouraging and terrifying. Why? Well, it's encouraging because you can be assured that even if you are praying wrongly, if you are in Christ, God by His Spirit is praying rightly the prayers that you wrongly prayed. So in Jesus, you cannot go wrong. Amen. But it's scary. Where it's scary is that what we think is best for us isn't always what the Spirit thinks is best for us. And we're getting in a bit to the end of the passage here, verse 28, where Paul says, God works all things for good for those who are called according to his purposes. His purposes. So have you considered this? Maybe God has a purpose for you that you do not have for you. Maybe God has different priorities than we might choose to have. So for example, I remember I was preaching a sermon on uh, 1 Peter 1 about the preciousness of our faith. And I was strongly convicted in my own heart that I don't value my faith the way that the Lord Jesus and, and the Spirit and the Father value my faith. In fact, they call my faith precious. Do I call my faith precious? Furthermore, he says that trials will come to refine my faith because it's precious. And that can be scary. And that can be God's 
will. So let me challenge us a bit here. When you pray and the Lord answers that prayer with a trial in your life, or the Lord answers that prayer by exposing sin in your life, or pride in your life, or challenges your patience, or anything that you don't want, but it is best for you, do you cry out to the Lord, or do you cry out against the Lord? So to put it another way, is your prayer, Lord, help me to overcome the trial, or is it, Lord, how on earth could you put me in this trial? How dare you? Are you relying upon God or fighting against him? So I bet if I were to ask for a raising of hands, and I won't, but many of us would answer too often fighting against him. And I want to give us some encouragement here. I want to reflect on just a second for the sentence, the spirit intercedes for the saints. What does it mean? Well, you know, the word intercede in the original language is different than the word prayer. They're similar. They both mean pray, but to intercede means to appeal on another's behalf. And then who are these saints? Well, saints in the Bible is another word for believers, for Christians. So Paul is saying that the Spirit appeals to the Father on behalf of believers. The Spirit appeals to the Father on behalf of believers. Now, there's something mysterious going on here. Somehow, the appeal that the Spirit makes is in alignment with the will of God, and yet, it's an appeal. It's an appeal. So to say it another way, the Trinity is not some giant machine that just spits out a mechanical answer and it's all simpatico. There is a real person of the Trinity who's appealing to God the Father on your behalf and somehow that prayer is heard and answered all in accordance with God's will. How does that happen? I don't know that answer. But we can be assured by this text that it does. And the fact that it does gives me great encouragement. Why? Because I have an advocate before the Father. I have an advocate before the Father. I have someone who speaks on my behalf and that intercession is really and truly taken into account before the God of the universe. So I want you to think about it this way. In what other religion of the world does the God appeal on your behalf to himself. There is none. There is not another religion where God comes down to man and helps him to pray. So what is this picture? Well, the picture is it's a a father helping a son find the words. So you know daily, daily, daily now, my now three-year-old, as of a few days ago, um, happy birthday, Elisha, My now three-year-old will struggle to find the words when he's upset. You've seen little children do this before. And and what do I do? Well, I'm his father, and, and I place my hand on his back, and I calmly say to him, I say, Elisha, what's wrong? What are you trying to say? And what am I doing? I'm helping him find the words. I'm helping him find the words when he's upset, when he doesn't have the words to say. The Lord searches hearts. 
He knows you. And He helps you to pray. Now, hopefully you can see how Paul gets then to this third and very famous verse 28. That he works all things uh, for our good. I want to look at that now. He works for your good. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, this verse is really where our hearts are challenged when it comes down to it. We think, really, God? Do all things really work together for good for those who love you? So I want you to remember in the introduction, we said that one of our biggest problems is that for us is that it is easier to groan against God than to bring our groans to God. I think one of the biggest times we've grown against God is right here in this passage, in this verse. Those times when we couldn't imagine how on earth you could intend that for good. Now I want to explain what this text uh, is saying here. So first remember this text is directly connected to the two verses before it. If it's true that the Spirit groans with you. If it's true that God searches our hearts and prays on our behalf for our good, then it is also true that all things work together for good according to God's purposes. Now, we need to be careful here. You might ask, again, how on earth could this horrible thing be intended for any good? And here is the answer in our text. All things work together for good, But not all things are good. A major theme in the Bible is what you meant for evil, God meant for good. God redeems what the devil destroys. Just because all things work together for good does not mean that all things are good. It's important that we call evil, evil. And it's important that we call good, good. But understand that God will never be the source of evil to you. Never. Only good. In fact, God is actively at work to redeem you from evil. There's always a temptation to blame God for sin and evil, but the text is clear. All things work together for good. Now, how do you define good? Well, I would define good by whatever God says is good. And what is some of the things that are most good to God? Your faith, your salvation, the hope we have that Christ will return. Those are good things. Now, verse 28, how might we summarize it? If we were to just summarize the whole verse. Well, remember, it's in the context of the Spirit praying for you, assuring you that God is at work for your good. So we might summarize it like this. Giving up control to God. Giving up control to God. And really, if you think about it, that's what the Westminster Confession Shorter Catechism says about prayer. Listen to it again. The giving up of our desires for things agreeable to his will. Now, the giving up could be the offering up, but it could also be the giving up. If nothing else, prayer is conforming us to the will of God. Now, here's some encouragement. The text says he is working good for those who are called. For those who are called, if he calls you, then you would have every assurance that he is working 
for your good. To say it another way, we know he's working for your good because he called you. He would not call you and then work against you. I want you to imagine with me the opposite statement. So say hypothetically that there are things in life Christians go through that God allows that will forever be irredeemable. Worthless. Having no meaning or purpose. Do you know what that would mean for your life? Well, it would mean that the God you worship is either evil or he's weak. He's impotent. Because he would be allowing evil to exist for no reason at all. I would much rather have a God who allows evil to exist and have a purpose than to have evil exist with no purpose. So we're not here to solve the mystery of theodicy tonight. I have to stay on track. How can we be assured that his purpose is good? Well, brothers and sisters, we look to the Son. We look to the Son. When we look at Jesus, we see a picture of the good purposes of God lived out in a man of sorrows and a man of suffering. When we look at Jesus and we hear him pray, Luke 22, he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. What are we hearing in his words? We're hearing the very Son of God plead with the Father to be spared from suffering. And yet, it was the Father's will that he suffer. So remember, Isaiah 53.10 says this, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. That's the NIV. And those are strong words. How can it be the Father's will to crush his own son? What kind of evil father does that? Maybe you're thinking. And it becomes clear when we see that it was for us that he was crushed. It was because of our sin that he suffered. And if Jesus had not been crushed, then we would have been lost. So how can we be assured that his purposes are good? Because as much as God loves his own son, he was willing to give him up in order to have you. So 1 John says this. He says, we love because he first loved us. We love because we have been loved. And in the cosmic unity of the Trinity, which is love for a moment in time, it was broken so that we might be loved by God. If the will of God was to crush the Son, do you know what that means for you? It means that you will never be crushed. You will be tried. You will be tested. God will work His good purposes in your life. But He will never crush you. He will always work for your good, and you can be assured of that by looking to the cross. The last thing I'll say is this. Uh, I want you to notice that the text says that all things work together for God for those who love God. Sorry. All things work together for good for those who love God. So maybe today you're in the room and you're saying, I don't love God. Maybe you're in the place of confusion in your faith or a place of longing to pray and be heard by God. But you, all you feel is silence. 
And here's some good news for you. To know God is to love Him. To know Him is to love Him. If you heard tonight the sacrifice of the Son on your behalf, and you believe that that sacrifice was for you, then you know Him. And you love Him. And you become a son to Him. So my invitation is you, to you tonight is to place your faith in Christ. Let's pray.